Shalom, shalom, friends. Chodesh Tov. Chodesh Tov, that nigun is um, one that many use in Hallel this morning. Um, Hallel that many of us sing on Rosh Chodesh. This is, Mar, this is Rosh Chodesh Mar Cheshvan. Some people mistakenly call it Cheshvan, but there is no month called Cheshvan. The Mar is called Mar Cheshvan. Um, but we still do like to give a little vort on Mar. So um, the, 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 the less common understanding of the word Mar emerges from a drop of water. It says in Tanakh, it uses Mar as a drop of water. And that's because this is the month of Geshem. Um, we are praying for rain, so a drop of water. But the more commonly explained explanation of Mar is bitter. Why is it a bitter month? Because we just had all these holidays. And now poor Mar Cheshvan has no holidays. It's a month of no holidays. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make it entirely bitter for me. I can get back to work. I can get back to Tuesday learning with you all, um, which is exciting for me. Um, however, there was another month that once had no holidays. That was the month of Kislev. Until, of course, Hanukkah came about. And then Kislev wasn't so sad anymore. It wasn't bitter. It got the holiday. Um, Yes, yes, Eileen. Um, and it got the holiday of Hanukkah, and Kislev was happy. And Mar Cheshvan this month was supposed to have a holiday. Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, was supposed to consecrate the Beit HaMikdash, and it did not happen. And so Mar Cheshvan did not get a holiday. But when a third temple is potentially consecrated, the idea is that that will happen in Mar Cheshvan, and that month will no longer be bitter but be celebratory as well. So with that, I wish you a Chodesh Tov, a good month of no holidays, um, but we can make every day a holy day and a special day together. So I'm so glad you're here and that we're back together for class 23. And some of our kindness topics are very abstract. Um, some of them are rather specific. And this one, reaching out to others falls into the category of, of broad, of being a broad one, as we shall see as it extends all the way into friendship. So um, let me start with a poll with each of you. Friends, let's talk about friendship. Friends, option one, for various reasons, I don't have any close friends at this point. Maybe they died, maybe they moved, maybe you had a falling out. Option two, I have a very small group of very close friends. Option three, 
I have many, many very close friends. So as always, there are more options we can all imagine in our heads. But given those three choices, where do you fall out on this issue of friendship? Okay, Alex, I think that's probably enough time. <clears throat> okay, 18% for various reasons don't have any close friends right now. 73% have a very small group of very close friends. And 9% have many, many very close friends. Okay, wonderful. Okay, Hevra, let's get started here. Can't wait to share some ideas and then to hear from you. Sometimes someone's need for support is very clear. They are calling us for support. They are asking us for help. They are knocking on our door. Other times, there's people who don't ask for help. Some, some don't even know that they need help. Being a person of kindness means that we're not only reactive to requests for help, but we actively reach out. We ask others what they need. We reach out without being begged for help. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously asked, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? We cannot only combat the great challenges of our day. We also need to leave room for the smaller positive acts of service. The 20th century Russian-British philosopher and historian Isaiah Berlin wrote, injustice, poverty, slavery, ignorance, these may be cured by reform or revolution. But people do not live by only fighting evils. They live by positive goals, individual and collective, a vast variety of them seldom predictable. The great Catholic teacher, Mother Teresa, said, do not wait for leaders. Do it alone, person to person. This is existential for us. And sometimes achieving something small, quote unquote small, is not so small at all. Emily Dickinson wrote, if I can stop one heart from breaking, if I shall not live in vain, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching or cool one pain or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. And so friends, we can and must master a practice of proactively reaching out to others. So many are isolated and suffering from loneliness and many other types of situations. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes on this loneliness issue, a similar state of affairs exists in the United States. A 2018 Cigna survey showed that 46% of Americans always or sometimes feel alone and 47% feel left out. One in four rarely or nev never feel that there are people who really understand them. 43% feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that they are isolated from others. 54% feel no one knows them well. These most distressed, those most distressed by loneliness were young people between 18 and 22 years of age. The phenomenon is not confined to the West. In Ukraine, Russia, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, and Latvia, 34% of the population declared themselves lonely. So that's a great reminder of the misperception that people think seniors are the most lonely. 
Turns out seniors have a lot of great social skills by and large, that it's actually young folks who are most lonely, lacking those social skills to deal with isolation. And yes, as was pointed out over here, COVID most certainly exacerbated such a situation. These numbers are striking and disheartening. He continues to explain the pain of loneliness and the benefits of socialization and connectedness. Simply playing cards with friends once a week or getting together over a cup of coffee adds as many years to life expectancy as giving up a pack of day smoking habit. You believe that? Doing something once a week with friends is like cutting out a pack of cards, excuse me, like cutting out a pack of, uh, a pack of cigarettes of, uh, a day. People with active social lives recover faster from illness. A study done by the University of California in 2006 showed that of the 300 women with breast cancer, those with a large, net, a large network of friends were four times as likely to survive as women with few social connections. Similarly, in the Book of Forgiving, Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, and his activist daughter, I don't know how do you pronounce her first name, Mafo, let's say, Mafo Tutu, share, Dr. Lisa Berman, chair of the Department of Society, Human Development and Health at the Harvard School of Public Health, studied 7,000 men and women. According to her findings, people who were socially isolated were three times more likely to die prematurely than those who had a strong social web. Even more astonishing to the researchers, those who had a strong social circle and unhealthy lifestyle, smoking, obesity, and lack of exercise, actually lived longer than those who had a weak social circle but a healthy lifestyle. A separate article in the journal Science concluded that loneliness was a greater risk factor, was a greater risk factor for disease and death than smoking. So um, we know many people, especially young people, but of all ages, who think it's all about the body. It's all about health, right? I am healthy. Why am I healthy? Because I eat these foods and I exercise this much a day, right? And of course, we want to encourage those things. Those things are incredible. But as we just saw, and maybe there's counter studies that I'm not aware of, as we just saw here, that one who worships the body as their God and finds exercise and food as their priority in solitude is not going to do as well as one who understands the power of human connectedness, socialization. Of course, we need both. Um, but this is also a case for exercising in groups, whether it's CrossFit with Ethan Widoff, whether it is taking a walk with a friend, um, perhaps even a dog, even walking a dog um, would probably be included here. Former U.S. Senator John McCain, who spent over five years as POW in Vietnam, described just how destructive for solitude can be. He said it crushes your spirit and weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. Um, he was known, I mean, he was obviously deeply, deeply conservative, but he is known today as a bipartisan collaborator given how broken Washington is. Um, and one of the areas where he collaborated with liberals on was on combating um, solitary confinement. All of this points to just how crucial it is for us to reach out to others in need, not only in need of physical and financial assistance, but emotional support and friendship as well. Rabbi Harold Kushner, uh, wishing him a speedy recovery, he writes, this is the terrible paradox of loneliness, 
the more it forces us to focus on our own needs, the harder it becomes for us to be alerted to the needs of others until we become our own worst enemies, chasing people away with our unrelenting focus on ourselves. True religion teaches us not how to win friends, but how to be a friend, to be concerned with alleviating the loneliness of others, learning to hear their cry instead of wondering why no one hears ours. When we have learned these lessons, connecting with other people around us becomes much easier. Indeed, loneliness is sometimes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, kind of a, a curse with layers of curse. We say, oh, I am a victim in my loneliness. I need more. And in serving the I more, we become more disconnected from the other, thus exacerbating our sense of loneliness, that sense of entitlement to kind of connection. And, and it turns out that actually giving and giving lishma for its own sake actually alleviates that loneliness. Um, because when we see others, we step outside of the eye and, and the, the loneliness and seclusion of our inner lives. Perhaps the codifiers of, of halacha had this very par paradox in mind when instituting an off-overlooked detail of the mitzvah of, Mish of Mishloach Manot, the giving of gifts of food on the holiday of Purim. We are informed if one does not have the means to give Mishloach Manot, two people should exchange food portions in order to fulfill the dictum of Mishloach Manot to one another. At face value, this halakha seems pointless, as at the end of the day, each ends up with no more or no less than they had before. But as we have seen above, there is dignity in the act of giving. And this minor detail of the mitzvah of gift giving provides every individual with that opportunity. I am not a part of the war against Halloween, although my kids think I'm in a part of the war against Halloween. Um, but um, but I do think that Purim has this so much more right than Halloween. Halloween, you knock on the door and say, give me stuff, right? And Purim, you knock on the door and say, I want to give you stuff, right? And so um, it is a beautiful kind of contrast there. Um, and so our kids, again, I'm not a part of the war against Halloween, but our kids are not a part of knocking on doors on Halloween. They are a part of answering the door um, in, in the spirit of um, in the spirit of, of, of Purim, of making it a, a giving day. Um, in any case, um, there is the famous quote in Genesis, and a man found him when he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? This is Joseph, of course. And he said, I am seeking my brothers. This story about Joseph strikes me so deeply. As a child who moved to different cities every few years, I constantly felt like I was seeking my brothers. To some degree, we are all wandering in search of our quote-unquote brothers. Friendship is a challenging virtue to cultivate, even more challenging in our transient times, even more so in our politically polarizing times. Yet in an age that is increasingly interdependent, our culture is strangely moving towards an illusion of independence. Cultivating spiritual friendship ensures we remain grounded in the types of human relationships that cultivate virtue. Transience is not even the biggest barrier to the cultivation of friendship today. Our web-based society has weakened the strength of our relationships, and the fast-paced, self-interested nature of these relationships has become more transactional. One can friend or unfriend, defriend someone with the click of a finger on Facebook. There are many quote-unquote friends created through social networking, 
but the social bonds are very weak. Web-based friendships may be interesting, entertaining, and enhance our social capital, but they rarely create strong dependent bonds that foster more moral, more moral and spirituality, um, more, more moral and spiritually inspired living. Friendship sadly becomes more about the taking than the giving. Today, we are witnessing increased individualism, decreased institutional affiliation, and more talk about social networks than about relationships. While this helps our emerging micro-communities, it diminishes our traditional communities. True friendship is on the decline. Cornell University sociologists found that adults have only two friends they can discuss important matters with which is down from, um, uh, from three in 1985. Half of those surveyed said they had only one and 4% had none. French meaning I am in a bind. I desperately need a friend for something. I have no one to call. There's literally not a single friend I could call. Friendship may still be social, but it is less confidential and intimate. Further, more Americans are living alone in major US cities 40% of households contain a single occupant, 40%. In Manhattan and Washington, D.C., nearly 50% of homes consist of only one person, right? We almost assume everyone lives within a family social context, and I'm the rare one. I'm the rare one who lives alone, right? Singles are marrying later, divorce is on the rise, and more individuals prefer to live in privacy than within a community. Increasingly, we live alone in a lonely society. Without deep friendships, we lack adequate self-knowledge and awareness of our blind spots. Lack of friendships can also lead to arrogance as we become less able to recognize our need for others. To acquire most of our world knowledge, we must rely upon what others have shared with us in order to supplement our own experiences. We look to experts for technical knowledge and to friends for subjective knowledge. And when we fail to cultivate friendships, we fail to cultivate ourselves. Aristotle suggests that there are three kinds of friendship, one based on pleasure, one based on utility, one based on virtue. We touched upon this um, about a month ago. Each of these can have value for those suffering from isolation. The word for friendship in Aramaic, chavruta, means more than just a relationship. It is the primary model of Jewish learning. A chavruta in its truest sense is a challenger, what we call in Aramaic, a bar plugta, not, not one who merely supports us, but also challenges us. Chavruta, friend, or your study partner, or your bar plugta, the one who challenges you. The Talmud teaches that in religious learning and growth, a friend is even more important than a teacher. I have learned much from my teachers, but from my friends more than my teachers, it says in Ta'anit. Interesting, um, uh, that's, uh, that, that, that in that picture is Shapiro. He's a former uh, U.S. Uh, ambassador to Israel. I guess he's visiting a Haredi yeshiva over there. Um, they, they are a reform Jewish family. And I see he's talking about Talmud in that yeshiva. Interesting picture. A friend of virtue can be more connected to our intimate life pursuits more than any teacher can be. Perhaps. <laughs> Thus, the rabbis teach that one is not even to part from one's friend without exchanging words of Torah. A friend on the highest level is primarily a learning partner, a partner in life. Similarly, Maimonides explains 
that people require friends all of their lifetime. And it is the strong advice of the rabbis to acquire for yourself a friend, as it says in Pirkei Avot. Like any other moral effort, doing so does not come naturally, but requires deliberation and toil. My commitment to supporting the cultivation of virtue-based friendships is motivated by Jewish values. To be sure, one clear and important value of friendship is utilitarian. Friends help each other in times of distress. I help you, you help me. Reciprocity. As Ecclesiastes teaches, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up their fellow. But woe to them that is alone when they fall, for um, they cannot um, help each other up. The, the Torah, too, consistently reminds us to protect the stranger. In friendship, we can move the other and ourselves from alienation into a social network and friendship. Rav Soloveitchik valued both a chaver lid'ega, a person in whom one can confide, both in times of crisis, when distress strikes, and in times of glory, when one feels happy and content, and a chaver lid'ega, a friend in whom he or she has absolute trust and faith, right? One that's kind of utilitarian, we help each other, and one which is kind of a deeper sense of trust beyond just reciprocity. A friend is an emotional partner in our high and low journeys. Sometimes friendship is manifest in lifelong commitment. Other times we can offer moments of the gift of friendship. One is never lonely if they are willing to connect to whomever they encounter. Every moment can be seen as an opportunity for spiritual friendship and presence. In addition to support, Rev. Soloveitchik explains, based on the book of Job, say for Eov, that there is a, a vital spiritual purpose to friendships. He writes, Job certainly did not grasp the meaning of friendship. Real friendship is possible only when man, man rises to the height of an open existence in which he is not capable of prayer and communication. In such living, the personality fulfills itself. It, it is not only Job, not only Job realizes the importance of opening himself spiritually to others, that he truly comes to understand the virtue of friendship. And the Lord returned the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Living a good, happy life without deep friendships was unfathomable to the rabbis. According to one Talmudic story, Choni, the legendary miracle worker, was depressed from social isolation. He prayed for death, that he might be released from his despair. And Rava, a great 4th century Talmudic sage, utters tersely that one must choose either friendship or death. The lesson is that we cannot thrive in our life missions without companionship. In the extreme, without companionship, one may choose death. When friendship is just about having a good time or a, on a hike or at a movie, it is not impactful or enduring. But when friendship is about the cultivation of virtue, the opportunity to pursue the good, the, explora the exploration of life and the search for meaning, it can be transformative and enduring. As the rabbis teach, any love that is dependent upon a specific cause, when the cause is gone, the love is gone. But if it does not depend on a specific cause, it will not cease. Friendships of pleasure and utility are fun, 
but end as our needs and wants evolve. Friendship of virtue are not whimsical as they are attached to our pursuit of the just, holy, and good. A friend is more than another who shares our experiences, values, or narratives. To friends, we have special duties that arise from our relationships. To become virtuous citizens committed to moral and religious excellence, life partners are crucial. Friends, to conclude, we need not be one's friends to reach out to them. We can care about others who are not friends and who we don't wish to be social friends. It just requires the empathy and the planning to work to see others who are often not seen and to hear those who are often not heard. Okay, my dear friends, I would love to hear from you on this, um, on this topic. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Shmuley. Uh, I joined um, a couple minutes late, but I, I don't know if um, you went over this, but something that strikes me, oh, excuse me, it's sorry, it has to ring. Um, something that strikes me living here without any, quote, family. I don't have any family here, Stan and I, don't have our kids here or parents or anything. And um, it's very important that the people in our lives who are our friends, we regard them as our family. I mean, they're people. So, you know, th there's that saying that you, you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. I mean, so these, the, 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 my family for the holidays, for example, you know, we're used to doing this, that, and the other thing. And it's, if we didn't have our friends, we would be alone. So, you know. Beautiful. Beautiful. Cheryl, thank you for that. Beautiful point. Thank you for sharing. Okay, anyone else? Yes, hi, Eileen. Cheryl, I agree. I am here with, quote, out family. So actually, I've adopted family. And um, I have some very close people who look after me, make sure that I'm taken care of, and I in turn do things for them. And I actually think creating our own families is healthier and better for us because there's no baggage. Beautiful, thanks, Eileen. Great, someone else? I guess I'll go. Um, so this particular Parsha is, um, has a really interesting meaning for me because I was born on a Shabbat and this was the Parsha from the day that I was born. But it's, um, okay, so, um, Mitzavim, you stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your tribal heads, your elders, and your officials, and all the men of Israel, your children, your wives, even the stranger within your camp, from wood chopper to water drawer, to enter into the covenant with, of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is concluding with you this day with its sanctions. Okay. Now, when you were talking at the end about how the Torah had actually, like, you know, talking about, well, the stranger in the camp also, though, I kind of wonder about that, like, is this particular part also referring to um, friendship, basically, like, as in reaching out to people? Well, God is reaching out to the people, you know, you know, like, and also this part talks about teaching with this one. So it was kind of scary when I was like, oh my God, that was the one from the day I was born. But anyway, though, the long story short is that God is reaching out and he is presenting the Torah to the people and he is making that covenant. And so is that, um, I don't know if I'm going to phrase this the right way though, but is that just um, something that is also just part of Judaism, you know, like woven into the fabric of Judaism that, that reach out to yeah. everyone basically? Beautiful, beautiful, Glea. Yeah, I love that. I, that's such an important point because today we are taught to believe that 
um, friendship means looking at each other, mm-hmm. right? I am looking at your face. You're looking at my face. We're looking eye to eye. Think Levinas, think Buber, think all of the studies today that talk about community and how you structure the room. Community is much more connected, which is honestly obvious when you're praying in a circle or learning in a circle than if you're sitting and listening in rows. I mean, that seems obvious to us, but we still structure our communities in rows rather than in circles, even though we know that. Um, And so, and yet, as Aglaia points out, the experience of standing at a mountain or standing in a revelatory covenantal experience where we're not looking at each other, we're looking out, but we're in a shared experience is also a really uh, powerful form of community and relationship. Um, And so if we are together volunteering, packing bags or digging, and we're doing this together, we're not directly looking at each other, that is also a deep experience. Or if we're sitting in a kind of shul where we're all listening to Torah reading or davening, and we are sitting in rows looking forward, we're in that shared experience. And so, um, yes, there's one kind of relationship where we're looking at each other, and another where we're looking at the thing we're doing, right? I often tell couples that I'm supporting in their family journeys that the, the big transition in having a child is that you go from a couple looking at each other to now a couple that's looking together at this child, looking less at each other. And that's not bad, right? I guess you have to learn how to look at each other still, right? But also it's a beautiful thing to have a shared project where you together are looking at the same thing, the same being. And so too with, with, um, with, with a chavruta, if you're looking at a text, you're looking at a text together. The text is the meeting place, right? And so um, so I love, Aglaia, that you brought up that uh, the Parsha and kind of that experience of togetherness. In fact, um, transformative experiences collectively can be so deepening for relationships, whether they're traumatic ones or they're celebratory ones. Sometimes we just think connecting ourselves is enough. But being in experiences together, looking outwards can be even more transformative than looking at each other. So thank you for that. Okay, we're going to go over to Reb Dove and then Eddie, and then I saw Toby with a hand. Yes. Guys, okay, now I'm good. Uh, first of all, you gave a great uh, sermon title, which I'm, I noted. Uh, children are not just your progeny, they're a project. So thank you for a title. I don't know where I'm going to write it. And I don't know who's going to listen to it. But anyone who's got children understands it. (laughs) Okay. Um, Number two, I want to thank you. One of the things that being present often means is listening and picking up on the side cues. One of the things you just did with the side cue was to tell me about Harold Kushner close friend. Uh, I followed him with Morty Waxman years ago as an associate rabbi. Uh, I taught his daughter archery at Ramah a long time ago. Uh, So you reminded me that, oh, I haven't checked in with him. Then I got very upset. So I called immediately. I've left a message and I'll talk to you at another time to find out what the heck's going on. Because now I'm worried, and you know he lost his wife about three months ago, four months ago. Not good, not good. Now, who are my best friends? I I don't like to say it, my 
colleagues I went to seminary with, my family, and they've been very good to me all the way, starting with my mother-in-law, outstandingly <laughs> positive. <laughs> all right. And, and my father-in-law, very, very good. But my students, over the course of time, every year that I taught became my best, best friends. They were upset that I wouldn't let them be my BFF. <laughs> they, they said, I said, I don't Facebook any student until you're in college. <laughs> End of discussion. And the greatest nachas is marrying them or naming children or being part of their lives. But you're right. They make the world. Love it. Thank you so much. So a few things there. Thank you for letting everyone know about Rabbi Kushner's wife passing. Um, and thank you for checking in on him. Um, and, um, and I, and I, and I really, um, and picking up on the, on so many jokes about mothers-in-law, mothers-in-law, but um, my mother-in-law just stayed with us for five weeks. She got on a plane this morning and I was sad to see her go. Um, some people said oh, five weeks in your house. What are you doing? You know, but uh, she's a wonderful person, and um, I was sad to see her go. So mo mothers-in-law get a bad rap. <laughs> um, but also to this um, issue of children and and being a project, um, a dear friend passed away just yesterday. His name was Bobby Willig. I don't suspect any of you have heard of him. He was a very renowned economist, uh, a Princeton uh, University economist, and was in the Clinton administration as an economist and. Um, yeah significant uh, person. And, um, but, it, but in his obituary, it, it quoted him once again as saying, by far the most important work of my life was raising my children and grandchildren. And so um, the relationships are, you know, uh, more than any prestigious uh, titles or awards or accomplishments, the relationships most dear to us um, are our true legacies in many ways. Uh, okay, Eddie and then Toby. Thank you, Rabbi. Yeah, thank you, Rabbi, for that. And um, I'm really resonating with the importance of um, being able to have friends that you choose. Um, I, I remember one of my uncles gave me one of the best advices I've ever had, which was he saying, um, uh, my friends don't choose me, I choose my friends. And he said, I am very intentional with that. And he told me the importance about choosing friends who are comfortable enough to tell you when you are messing up. He said, a, fruit trend, a, a true friend that just agrees with you on everything is not a true friend. Uh, he said, uh, you're just, you're, you're, you're building, yes, people around you, and that's not going to ever elevate you in, in um, where you need to be. And he talked to me about the importance of being, of having your friends that are there with you when it isn't just fun stuff to do. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad Aglea prone, uh, talked about uh, one of my favorite poets, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, because he has a poem called Sin Un Dia, Without a Day. Um, and in this poem, he says, if, if in one day you want to cry, call me. I may not be able to make you laugh, but I'll, I'll be able to, to cry with you. And if in one day you do not wish to talk to nobody, call me and we'll sit in silence together. I think that's a beauty in, in the, the, the narrative around friendship, because we think that friends are only there for the good time but our, our, our friends and colleagues should be there to enrich our, our faith, our uh, intelligence, our morals, uh, not just be uplifting to our fun. Beautiful, beautiful points, Eddie. Thank you so much. Over to Toby. I have kind of a weird reversal of all of this. I grew up as an only child 
and my parents treated me as though I was an adult from a very early age. And so I never really learned all of those skills that people learn when they have other people around. And I didn't really realize this until I got into college and started having to socialize with other people. And I, I was constantly shocked at how other people, you know, shared things and learn. I, I thought it's like I grew up in a cave or something, you know, I just hadn't acquired those skills. And then recently I, I got very sick. I almost died. Oh. I had a surgery that went very wrong and I realized how important it is to have people because my parents, everybody in my family's dead. It's only me. It's always been only me and it's really only me now. Um, but I realized how important it was and that it was my job. It's not anybody else's job to supply me with friends. You know, it's my job to go and nurture people and to make those relationships. And um, I don't know if anybody else has that same sort of experience. I guess that's kind of a, an oddball one, but um, the pandemic, I think, has created a lot of situations where people who had family or have family and didn't get to see them. Um, I can only imagine how difficult that, that was for people who were used to having all these connections and then all of a sudden not having them. So I'd appreciate your thoughts on that. I, it's kind of Great. weird. Awesome. Thank you, Toby. Yep. Anyone else either want to offer something new or respond to that? Maybe uh, we haven't heard yet from Francine or Eric or Vicky or Sarah. I'm not sure who's calling from 917 or Alex, Ethan. Hi, Vicki. Hi, Rabbi. I'm getting ready to go to a meeting, but I will just uh, say it was a great, really, really thoughtful presentation. Thank you. Lots to think about, about how we react to others. I just want to throw one thought out, though, that has um, something that I've been dealing with. And I think those of us who are lucky to live long lives and have friends that have lived long lives as well and are now dealing with health issues um, and so on and, and or, you know, people passing away is being sensitive to the fact of when you should extend a hand right. and when you need to be thinking about people and maybe letting them know that you're there, mm -hmm. but giving them their space yes. and respecting their privacy. And I find it really hard to, you know, to assess that. And I tend to be, I guess, overly concerned about being intrusive. But I just know that some people, they want people around and some people don't. Right. And you're giving them a gift by sitting back, even though your instinct is so, what can I do? Yes, thank you so much for that, Vicki. We, um, most of us spend a lot of time in, anxiety, trying to figure out how to reach out to people in need, whether to reach out, what the most appropriate thing to send is, or, I mean, literally I was on a text. I, I, I was on a text with a some family members yesterday. It probably took a hundred texts from all of us to figure out what to send to a particular person who was having a hard time, who should send it, what it should be, what time it should get there. And then we reworked the whole thing. We said, no, that's all wrong. Let's start over. I mean, it is so hard to realize, um, um, what someone needs. And, um, and so thank you for sensitizing us to that. And not only that people need different things, but some people actually want their space. So, so Vicki, what do you think about how we gather that data? Um, do you think we just, is the answer always just directly asking? 
Um, I'll tell you two things. One is maybe it's direct, directly asking. Um, I think it really is maybe just getting us, just trying to get a sense of things. And obviously, if you reach out in a very, just thinking of you, that's it. Um, when you get a response, you get a response. Texting is, is really helpful rather than picking up the phone because people may not want to talk. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's one way of, uh, of doing it. But I just think being sensitive to the fact that really some people just don't, don't want company and they don't want to share where they're not ready uh, to do that. Do you have any ideas? Thank you. Yeah. So I, you're right. It's so, it is so, it is so complex um, because some people um, like me, if you said, how can I help? I, no matter almost any situation, I'm going to say, no, no, please. We're fine. You know what I mean? You don't need to do anything. You know, like you actually have to just do something. You can't ask other people. Um, we have to ask to find out actually what they need, you know, or maybe they don't need what we want to offer. Um, and so it is so hard to know what some, and so part of his emotional intelligence, part of it is asking. And I think part of it actually is rather than making a big move or, or small move is testing out with little things. If I move a little closer, do they move closer or do they move away, right? If I may send a little note, how do they respond to that? And then kind of getting some data and doing another test and kind of just, it's like a dance, kind of adapting to the response. So it's not just like a black or white. It's kind of like, I'm going to feel that's, out this. That's a good way to put it, but I wanted to add one thing that I yes, forgot, yes, yes. which was, yeah. I have a friend who is, who is dealing with a very serious health issue. Yeah. And she, I don't know if I would ever do this, but she wanted people to know. Yeah. So she put a list together and she asked her daughter to reach out to this group of friends and let them know what was happening with her. Yeah. And I have to tell you that, and she wanted people to come and see her. So immediately I said, fine, when should I come? But it was a gift in a lot of ways, because as soon as you hear about someone getting a, you know, a devastating uh, diagnosis, you want to do something, but you don't really know what to do. And in this case, it would, and you also don't know if it comes third hand, what this real situation is. This right. came from the person and said, this is what's happening. I'd love to see you. Yeah. Just another Thank idea. You. Thank you. Was one more comment before I see there's a few folks that jump in. Um, I love that. And um I think I want to remind us of the value of week two. Um, everyone loves, uh, many people love to be a first responder, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they wonder why the person doesn't respond. Well, it's because their loved one died yesterday. It's because they're in post-op. Like they came out of major surgery six hours ago, they didn't respond. It's because that you heard they filed for bankruptcy and like they're still in the shocks of paperwork two days later, right? But week two, week two a lot of people fall away. Right now you're out of, you know, you're out of the hospital. Now you're out of Shiva. Now you're out of the shock of kind of week one and people forget week two or even month two, however you want to think of it. And so sometimes we think, oh, I reached out once, they didn't respond. So maybe I should take a step back, but actually sometimes it was just a timing issue. Okay, Matthew. Yes, Matthew, and then Cheryl, then Eileen. I had a, I know, yeah. I have a close friend here whose granddaughter just passed after 18 months of fighting uh, childhood leukemia. She was diagnosed when she was 11 months old. And he was away for most of the time helping out. But whenever he was here, I made an effort and we walked every week. 
and his comment was how he was gone for so long. It's like he disappeared from people following up. And you had to make an effort. When are you going to be here? Do you want me to fly to Napa, et cetera? But it's more than just the second week. It's especially when someone loses a parent and they're sitting in Kaddish for a year. Is reaching out during the long term is what the definition of kindness and friendship is. Great, great. Amazing. And so maybe y'all are in a group. Maybe you're in a poker group, a book club, uh, pickleball, maybe a prayer group. I mean, I mean, there's billions of kinds of groups, right? And sometimes people fall out of those groups. They, they're in a six-month recovery. They're, they've gone through something. Like, yeah. So like Matthew reminds us, sometimes it's not just second week, second month. It's a long haul. It could take a year to come out of a traumatic experience or many years. Um, and so how do we reintegrate someone back into a space who has fallen out of a space, right? Um, and so that's that's not a that's not a small question. Uh, okay, hi, Cheryl, then Eileen. Um, I was just going to say that uh, I think that um, Shiva is, and when you talked about week two, I think that is absolutely so to the point. Um, and also, I found that I just talk, was talking to a woman um, this past Shabbat at Shul who said that she goes to um, a minion every day. Her, her sister died in June, but her mother died six months before. I mean, so she's a minion every day. She, her community originally is, is in Florida. And so she's on that, but then she's at our minion, minionim also at, at our synagogue. And I think that really helps because there's another kind of community. There's another a kind of community to uh, to with people who understand understand lots of I mean you have people who regularly attend Minion or others who are also saying Kaddish. I know we did the um, the kindness of mourning and, and the kindness you know that those kinds of things, but um, that's yet another community. And she said to me, "It's really helpful. It's really helpful." So. Um, there, there are, like you said, there's just, uh, I mean, from top to bottom, A to Z, you can find a community to belong to, but then again, you have to either be the person to say, I need to find a place for myself. And a lot mm -hmm. of people don't know how to do that. Or you have to be the person who can find out about these people and reach out and say, come and join us. Yeah. Eileen, uh, thank, you. thank you so Eileen, much. Uh, forgive yeah. me for jumping in. I wanted to make a PS to this. Cheryl's right. A, you have to be the right kind of person willing to go to Minion. But secondly, as a rabbi, now 80, I can only tell you of the weddings I've done for people who met at Minion, both a <laughs> widow and a widower. <laughs> there we go. Taka, the best group to go to. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, my uh, my sister in law met and became you know a partner with a, a man um, that they were in a support a grief grief support group, so they'd yep. both been through the same thing with their spart with their spouses and you know then they were together. So I mean it's a common a common bond you know a sad one or a happy one or an interesting one or an intellectual one or a religious one i mean there's so many different kinds of bonds that people can share and get together and find solace in the company of another yeah beautiful beautiful you know and i do think that the people who uphold minyanim are are really heroes if if we have a loss in our family we 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 want many of us want a minion we we even expect it 
um, you know, that uh, our synagogue should be upholding a minion magically, mystically somehow without, <laughs> right. But actually somehow it's there for us. And um, when, and it's, it's just such a powerful teaching in Judaism that you need a minion to say certain prayers um, and that we, we need community to do that. It's, we're not, we're not, it's not about the individual. I mean, of course we can pray alone and there's value to that. And, and I also just want to add that because we're, I'm so blessed with this regular group who, who shows up, um, I'm o- I always notice if someone's not here. So no one ever needs to send me a note saying like why I'm not here. I mean, many of you do send me notes as to why you're not coming. But I notice and I'm always kind of torn on whether to reach out because I don't want to say it's like, you miss class, right? <laughs> it's not that by, but like, hey, we miss you. We miss you. And like, I notice who's here and who's not here. This is a community of friends and of friends of, of, of learning. And so I just want to add that note of what this space means to me as well. Um, and what it means to see people here and not see them here as well. Eileen, hi, Eileen. Hi, um, I just want to make this global in the sense that there are communities called blue zones. Blue zones are areas, Okinawa is an example. There's an island in Greece and there are, there's actually an area in South in Southern California, which is the blue zone. Um, These are areas where people live very long productive lives. And one of the strong reasons is because of their connectedness, not only with family, but with the community. And in Okinawa, the old women are given jobs where they can sit and do something and still be productive. So we might wanna think about how our communities can be more inclusive to us seniors, as well as inclusive to the younger kids. It, It seems to me that too many of the temples, for example, only consider the midpoint and they don't provide enough um, support for both of these groups which are outside the typical age bonds. Beautiful. Thank you, Eileen, for that. And just picking up on your last point, I, I, I I would love to think about more life stage, life cycle, uh, rituals, celebratory rituals. It's like we have all these young ones like bar bat mitzvah and in some synagogues there's a confirmation. Then there's kind of like graduations, then there's marriage, then there's babies. And then you stop and your next kind of ritual is like death. You know what I mean? And so like, like how do we actually build a whole lot more celebratory moments and milestones into those as well? Um, yes, Eileen, yeah. Is there some type of Jewish celebration to hit 75 or 80 or 85. And there is this growing experience. There is this growing experience of celebrating a bar bat mitzvah again. Um, I think it's being done at age 83. Is that right? Yes, it's 80 because you would, it's uh, four, it's uh, three score and 10 plus the 13. Okay. Oh, and all, all the more so for women who grew up in traditional communities and didn't have the opportunity of a bat mitzvah. Um, All the more so for them. It's exciting. So, um, but it's great for everyone. But yeah, it's a good example. Yeah. Hi, Aglaia. 
Okay, not to dork out on everyone though, but I, you know, I'm gonna dork out on everyone, you know. Uh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, did anyone any else in here like read Elizabeth Eisenstein, the print culture, rep wait, what was it, the culture? We always refer to it as Eisenstein, okay? So it's about how print culture basically transformed communications and everything. And so in a lot of ways though, um, the printing press, because, you know, the short version of it is though, is that a lot of local communities broke down because of the printing press. People didn't have to stand around in the village square anymore to listen to the news. They could get it from the newspaper, you know, so on and so forth. And so bigger, you know, communities actually end up being formed, but a lot of communities break down. Now, the compare and contrast, if we're talking about younger people and loneliness and everything, okay, Social media, I'm going to tell you right now, has been not exactly conducive to building substantive friendships. However, though, social media is allowing them to, you know, connect with people, you know, and improve communications with people on another side of the world, even some of them. However, though, I see them in a classroom looking like this. They're sitting next to each other and they look like this. Okay. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, though, so it like I was explaining to students, I was like, look, the same sort of thing is happening. The local communities do break down while other communities are being formed. However, though, I think we need to be mindful of, okay, how substantive are these newer communities? Are you talking to someone on the other side of the world? Are you talking about anything? Are you just basically being silly? You know, just, I mean, I'm not to say it like that, but I'm being, you know, dorking out though, but are you really like getting into something that really means something to you? Or are you just basically exchanging small talk? And can I dork, can I dork on you? Yeah, please. <laughs> I mean, really dork, okay? Yeah, let's go dorky, dork it. <laughs> it's dork time. Uh -huh. I, I was trained in behavioral analysis of neurophysiology. Okay. I mean, this is way out. That okay. was my pre-rabbinic. I wanted to be a, a, a research doctor. Let me explain to you something that what happened in social media, mm -hmm. you will study two different areas. One of them is called Skinnerian schedules of reinforcement. Mm -hmm. You will understand slot machines. And you will understand Facebook. Anytime you get a reaction, they record it and that sends you into another direction. And they literally can separate you from anyone whom you wanted to speak to, to nonetheless follow the people whom you liked and then further like, mm -hmm. and then further like. And that's the reason you don't give up on the slot machine either. They pay mm -hmm. you off just enough to keep you and keep making money. Yeah. But the, the social platforms are making money on ads. They get paid every time you click. So if they can keep you on for 20 clicks, they made more than they did with 10 clicks. Mm -hmm. And it, in terms of, it's called variable interval, mm -hmm. fixed uh, and variable reinforcement, positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those two schedules can kill you. Mm -hmm. That's what yeah. makes you an, an addict to gambling, to the machines, to anything. And they are literally controlling our lives and we have given up. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah. yeah. Um, well, first, thank you for outdorking me today. Okay. <laughs> I, can't, I can't come close to that. All right. But the thing that I was kind of wondering about though is that is there a way for us? Well, I mean, people have to want to, you know, have that substance and everything. But is there a way for us to actually make substance out of something that we just cannot control? We cannot control that everybody wants to go online and just get like some sort of like easy answer for things and stuff like that. So is there a way for us to take that and turn it into substance, something substantive? Clickbait. Learn how to write clickbait. You know what? I could. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, did you want to jump in, Matthew? Please. No, I'm no, good. I'm good. I'm, I'm just very pleased that my that I'm trying to rearrange my Tuesday morning consulting in New York by saying I'm out for a period and can join this yeah, group well, good. again. Good, good. But yeah. I just find it fascinating because I think of my granddaughter who's 16 who occasionally says to us, I refuse to answer text and other things because it drives me crazy and people have learned to understand that. <laughs> and having said that, when you had the Emily Dickinson quote up there today, earlier, we were talking about that. So I sent it to her and she wrote back, I don't know where she is, whether she's in class or not. Wow, I hope we read that in class. And I wrote, well, I'm taking this class on kindness. I'll send you the links, you know? Mm -hmm. But she literally shuts down and refuses to answer because it's overwhelming and it doesn't allow her to think. Wow, wow, beautiful, thank you. Um, okay, so friends, next week, we're going to look at shituf peula, which means sharing. We're going to look at the complex economic and psychological and um, Torah-rooted approaches to how we think about sharing stuff. Just wondering, maybe we should like that and increase the movement of our platform. <laughs> yes. Hey, I like things. I like things on the Facebook page. So I'm doing I think liking... <laughs> I think liking is a kindness. When you go to someone's posts and you like them, I think that's an act of kindness. I know people who like to just kind of silently look around. I want to look at people's stuff. I don't want to put any likes anywhere, you know, <laughs> but I think it, uh, I think likes are a nice thing. Have a great day, everyone.